ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. It is another gorgeous day in the state of Florida. Uh, I'm coming to you from Tampa. This is Chickie Fitzgerald. And we have a really, really interesting show for you today, particularly if you are a data hound. We are going to be talking to author John Johnson. And John has written a book called Every Data, the misinformation hidden in the little data that you consume every day. John, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, this is a fun topic for me. In fact, I have been spending uh, the last two days combing through data provided to me by uh, the company that I resell their products. And uh, so I, I am uh, actually on data overload, which I guess is a good thing for this particular call. <laughs> well, we'll try not to push you over the edge today. How about that? <laughs> Well, terrific. John, before we dive in, our listeners always like to hear uh, a little bit about you and, and the thumbnail of uh, your career and how this book came into existence. Uh, sure. Well, I am an entrepreneur and a business owner in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, my training is as a professional economist and in a field called econometrics, which combines statistics with economics. Uh, I have a Ph.D. from MIT. And uh, early in my career, I was a college professor, uh, but I generally found it was a little too social to be a professor. It wasn't quite practical <laughs> enough for me. <laughs> so I um, went into consulting about uh, 15 years ago and developed a career as actually as an expert witness. And so what an expert witness does is I testify in uh, high-stakes litigation, often in issues that involve large data sets giant pricing data sets, things like that, right. where I try to make sense yeah. of those data sets for judges for juries, for attorneys. And so it was from that experience as a expert that I really started to think about how data is conveyed, how data affects people, not just in the settings that I'm used to, but in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, actually, expert witness work is one of my favorite things to do as well. I'm an expert in the travel industry. And uh, as an industry, we have huge data sets and huge pricing sets and one of the most convoluted set of pricing rules, I think, of any industry anywhere. <laughs> oh, sure. And, you know, what I'm always amazed by is, you know, when you're an expert, you get to learn, um, you know, the kind of expert I am. I actually come in and study very many different industries, right? right. So I get to come in and learn about all sorts of things, everything from chocolate candy bars to hop-on, hop-off tour buses. I mean, the, the scope is incredible. But every time you learn a new industry, a new field with pricing, it's incredible how different it can be and how uh, every industry has such wonderful nuances and complexities you have to understand to do good data work. Oh, absolutely. Well, I've written a blog. Uh, it's actually a rewrite of something someone wrote uh, decades ago called, you know, If Airlines Sold Paint. You know, what would happen if you went to the <laughs> counter and tried to buy a gallon of paint? You'll have to look that up when we're done because <laughs> it, it's actually quite comical. <clears throat> well, John, let's let's dive into the book. And, you know, for those who are listening, maybe you should just give a context. And, and you've actually coined a new term here that I've never heard, uh, which is every data. We've all been hearing about 
big data and and you know how that's going to be impacting our lives you're actually talking about the little data so so give us a little bit of a definition Sure. So you're absolutely right. I mean, all the press is about big data, these giant data sets, you know, the kind of data sets that I work with in my consulting work. But what I've been thinking a lot about over the last several years is that, in fact, it's these little data sets we encounter every day, whether it's, you know, you wake up in the morning, you know, the first thing you see is your alarm clock. That's little data. You open your emails, you check social media, you go on the internet, you look at what the weather is going to be, and you see the temperatures. We are bombarded with lots of little information that could be fit on your phone, that can fit in a small Excel spreadsheet. And yet that information is actually some of the most powerful things we use to make decisions to drive our daily lives. And so that's what the notion of every data is. Every data is all of the little data that we consume on a daily basis. And you talked about how much data. The fact that it's little doesn't mean it doesn't add up. I mean, we have one of the numbers I quote in my book is that each person on average consumes the equivalent of 34 pickup trucks worth of data every day. So even if you don't think oh you're gosh. a big data expert. No wonder expert, I'm exhausted. <laughs> exactly. Everybody is sort of confronting this. Um, and that was really the genesis of the idea as we started to think about, wow, it's not just big data, but it's little data that affects our lives, affects our families affects what we do every day. Oh, absolutely. And yesterday I was on the phone with Intuit for three hours because oh. the accounts receivable account in my balance sheet did not equal the balance in my accounts receivable chart of accounts. And you know, the guy the guy swore up and down to me that, you know, the the data had passed all of their integrity checks. And I said, Yeah, except for the most important one, right? Which is oh, the balance sheet is supposed to actually reflect what's in the chart of accounts. So yeah, you know, you, you are so, so right. And you know, I've been going around and around uh with um the company that I resell their their product and I won't mention it because I, I, I don't want to make them feel bad, but you know they have a, a serious data problem because they set the expectation of their customers, uh, you know myself, of what mm -hmm. they are going to make on each transaction, and then it doesn't come out that way every month. In fact, almost all of the time it's less. And so I told them, why don't you just in that one field put the average of what people are getting instead of, you know, whatever algorithm you have that's calculating this because it's given you a bad rap every single month. And it's just a number. It's not even a real, you know, it's not like they've been paid something and they're, you know, disclosing that. It's they're estimating what they're going to be paid. And uh, so you're right. I mean, data just hits us everywhere. And, and that's really your first chapter is data, data everywhere. And so this introduction to every data and, and how our lives are impacted. So the, the next thing that you talk about is, is sampling. And, and yes. you call it the challenger challenge. So, so tell me what the challenger challenge is. Yeah, well, this is one of the more striking examples in the book, I actually think, and it's um, it has to do with actually the Space Shuttle Challenger uh, in 1987 um, that uh, blew up when it was launched. And we go back and we actually look at the data sets that the engineers at Morton Thiokol and NASA were studying the night before when they were trying to decide whether or not to send the Space Shuttle into orbit. 
And basically, it turns out those data sets had 24 data points total. That's enough. I could put that in an Excel spreadsheet and show you right now. In fact, we right. have a picture in the book where we show all the data. So that's little data. But what we talk about is the real lesson of that is what was the question they were trying to answer? The question they were trying to answer was, is it safe to fly the space shuttle at a temperature that was in the mid-30s, which was 15 degrees colder than any prior space shuttle mission? That right. was the question they had to answer. And there was a specific focus, and a lot of people heard of this because over time, this has kind of become a, a fairly famous piece, the O-ring. And the whole story was about whether or not these little O-rings that surrounded the, the fuel tanks would degrade or would have a failure. And the purpose of the O-ring is that's what sort of holds the hot gases into the tank. If the O-ring fails, there's the potential for a catastrophic event. So what we do is we go through and we say, what the engineers decided to do the night before is they said, well, we know there have been failures at several temperatures. There are about seven failures in prior missions. So right. One was at 70 degrees. There were some at 60 degrees. There were some at 50 degrees. And when they looked at the failures, the data for the failures, there was no clear pattern between temperature and O-ring failure because they just seemed to be all over the place. So as a result, they said, oh, it's safe to fly the space shuttle because there's no pattern here. But the problem is they cut the data in a very specific way. They threw out all of the data on all of the flights where there were no failures. And it turned out all of those were clustered at very high temperatures. If you included those in your analysis, it's really clear that O-ring failure is very highly related to temperature. That's little data, disastrous consequences. Wow. And then you give an example uh, about, uh, you know, taking a box of crayons uh, and oh, yes. you want to know how many of them are blue. And, and, you know, I think that this one is so funny because, again, if you take a sampling of a smaller number, you don't necessarily get the right results for the whole box. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things, you know, especially in an election year, right, we hear about sampling all the time, right? <laughs> the reason why sampling yes. exists and matters, you know, I, I was, the, the election is a good context because I can't, let's say I'm thinking about the New York primary and I want to know what the results of the election are going to be before we do the election. I can't go out and interview every single person who's ever going to interview, I just can't, right. uh, who's ever going to vote. So I've got to do a sample. Well, if you think about it, you know, you're looking at 200, 300 people and you're going to extrapolate that to all of the voters, Right? So we take the crayon example. Let's say I want to know how many blue crayons are in a box of crayons. All right, If I give you a box of 24 crayons, what are you going to do? You're going to open it. You can count. Oh, one, two, three. There's three right. blue crayons. I've got the whole, what they call the population in statistics. Right. But let's say it's a really great year. Santa Claus is really good to you. Brought you a million boxes, a million crayons in your box this year. And I ask you the same question. How many blue crayons are you going to do you have? Well, I'm not going to be able to count unless I have a lot of time. All million crayons <laughs> to find out, right? So you take a sample, and so you take some set of them and say, okay, based on the number that I pulled out, I see, oh, there's three blue crayons amongst these 24, so I can extrapolate to the million how many percentage are blue. Right. Okay, that might make sense. But what if it's the case I happen to draw all of the crayons from my sample from the row where all the blue crayons in the box were? I might find that of the 24 crayons I pulled, all 24 are blue. Right. Does that mean a million crayons are blue? Of course not. But again, where I take those crayons from is going to matter quite a bit. So that's the way I think about sampling, because it's such a simple example, but it really drives home what the nature of the exercise is you're trying to do when you sample data. Right, right. Well, and I'm trying to remember, in fact, I think it's a, a joke about if you put your 
head in the oven and your your feet in the freezer, you know, like what temperature are you? <laughs> and, <laughs> and and it you know it's it's that that whole craziness uh, about uh, again the situation and the circumstance and and you know you raise that uh, in a couple of very interesting uh, circumstances and I, I mean I even think about. Uh, you know, the, the political phone calls that go out, because first of all, they're working from a list, right? And and whether they call the people on the list that are over 65 uh, will sure. pretty much indicate what, and if the phone calls are made during the day, right, are, are they going to be home, right? Is there going to be anybody there to answer the phone? And and so I, I, I think it's just a fascinating, fascinating topic, uh, this whole thing uh, about the uh, the samples and and also averages and aggregates and you know you you talk about this in your your third chapter where you mm-hmm. are talking um, about uh, the state of Texas and and this Texas Showdown uh, Festival and then you're also talking about um, it as being a uh, red state versus a blue state. So, so talk to me a little bit about this, about yeah. the 2012 uh, presidential election. Yeah, so, you know, it's actually, you know, it's not a political book, although we've done a couple of political examples now. But sort of one of the ones I really like is just sort of the notion of red states and blue states, because that's something, again, people can really relate to, because we hear this narrative in the media all the time. And what we do in the book is we talk about, all right, well, how you look at the data actually depends or actually changes how red or how blue something might look. The Electoral right. College is winner take all state by state, for the most part. There's Couple of, there's one state, I believe, that's a little different. But for the most part, you win the, the popular vote in a state, you get all the votes in the Electoral College. You've so obviously we talk not about been the talking fact. to Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I haven't. Um, so, but then we say, you know, that's great for the narrative of is it a red state or a blue state. But right. if you go back and you look county by county, you would start to see a very different pattern. Because, look, we all have friends, no matter where we live, Florida, Texas, D.C., doesn't matter. We all have friends that are Republicans and Democrats. There's no place where 100% of the people are Republican or 100% are Democrat, at least not that I know. Um, And so when you start to look at it and break it down more narrowly, you can see counties that are either more blue or more red. Or then we even do another map where we sort of show what happens when you kind of can shade by sort of you know, approximate populations, and you can really see how much of the country is actually kind of purplish, right? right but right. in this winner-take-all situation, it's, that's a great example of aggregation, right? We're taking the entire experience of everybody, and we're pushing it into one box. You're red state or you're a blue state. Even though within those red states and blue states, there's millions of Republicans, millions of Democrats. Right. Right. Well, and I think that the figures that you have in this particular chapter are fascinating because you start with the states and and look at those, and then you have another map that's the counties, and it's a very, very different picture. But obviously the large populations, uh, you know, end up being those blue counties. So fascinating, fascinating stuff. So, you know, you say that this is not a political book, so let's let's talk about (laughs) – Technology, because that's the next okay. turn, is, uh, yeah. you know, you, you take a look at um, the use of the iPhone and and you talk uh, about correlation versus causation. What's all about this that? This is one of my favorite chapters in the book because um, what I always start when I talk about this with folks, I say, you know, look, uh, I'm a parent. 
my co-author's a parent. We really want our kids to be as great as they can be. And, you know, so, so instead of spending money on college, what I've decided to do is I'm just going to make them smarter by giving them an iPhone, having them listen to Radiohead, teaching them to juggle, uh, staying up later, uh, being left-handed, wearing eyeglasses, and, le- and drinking <laughs> earlier in life. Because every one of those things I read in the newspaper are going to make someone smarter. <laughs> so first thing you say is, and you're, gonna you're a, a crazy lot guest. What are you doing here? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but but this is the this is probably one of the most powerful ideas in the book. Because this is one that I think no matter what other whatever your views are on statistics or if you hate math, everyone can grasp this concept. There right. is a difference between finding a statistical relationship and it actually meaning something, right? And in fact, oftentimes, this is the place where you see the news media gets this wrong the most. Okay? So I went and looked at all these studies on how to make you smarter. And in fact, I'll mention on my website, I actually now have another tab next to my blog called Get Smart, where I actually have a repository of every article we found on how to get smarter. I think we're up to 70 or 80 different things that make you smarter now, um, <laughs> in addition to the ones in the book. But it's actually quite Amazing, because it's the same narrative over and over. The iPhone study, using an iPhone will make you smarter. I went and looked at the study. What the study said was the percentage of people in your state that have an iPhone is correlated with the percentage of people that hold a bachelor's degree. Well, that doesn't mean that if I use an iPhone, I'm going to get smarter. It means states (laughs) where there's more people that complete college are using iPhones. Right, right. So it's kind of funny because you can often get at that. And, again, that's something you could see that headline. I mean, I read one the other day about new brain zapping technology makes you smarter. Um, It's an incredible thing. And, again, one of the things I love about the book, and I hope some of the readers will get out of it, is that once you see a couple of these things I mentioned and you start to pay attention, you will be amazed at how frequently you'll find these stories now. So I might have just ruined it for you. You might be looking for smarter stories now the rest of your life, but it's pretty comical. (laughs) No, I was just thinking about printing them all off and putting them in my daughter's suitcase when I send her off to college (laughs) in the fall. Exactly. Save for the tuition money. It's not a big deal. Just give her that iPhone. (laughs) Oh, well, and she's already ahead of the game because she does wear glasses. But, again, the study points to the fact of the relationship between being smarter and wearing glasses, but it really has to do with the quality of your eyesight deteriorating by spending more time in school, right? Exactly right. So these kind of reverse causations or other relationships, you know, academics spend lots of time on causality because ultimately when we think about decisions and what research is going to mean for it to be practical, we won't usually care about cause and effect relationships. And, you know, I think as humans, we're wired to think about cause. We want to believe that something we're doing is causing something else, right? I think that's a cognitive thing. But with data, the fact that we can find relationships surely doesn't mean they're causal. I mean, one of my other favorite examples is um, the murder rate in the U.S. is highly correlated with ice cream sales. So does that mean that if I want to uh, stop murders in the U.S., I should just ban all ice cream? No, it actually means that murders go up in warm weather, and that's when people eat a lot of ice cream. But if you just took it on its face, your your policy prescription is no more ice cream for anyone, and we'll have a, a much safer country. There you go. Well, you know, it's so funny because um, – Quite frequently, uh, you know, I've had a consulting firm for 20 years, and and I'm a strategic Mm -hmm. consultant. And when someone sends me an RFP, a request for proposal for doing research, 
the first thing I do is to try to tell them why they don't need the research. Because, <laughs> you know, not because research doesn't have value, because clearly it does if properly used, but I think so many people misuse it. And and they don't know how to handle all of the different dimensions. And, and travel is a great example. Um, you know, several times a year there are major studies done about the behavior of how, you know, how people are traveling. Uh, but yet I work in an industry that hasn't changed the way that we sell travel. Uh, I, well, I mean, you could argue that the Internet changed the way that we sell travel, but it really doesn't. When you want to go on a trip, we find you a hotel in the city center or the airport where you're going. And we actually make you tell us that. We don't ask right. you, John, where are you actually going? Right? And we don't search for a hotel near that place. Now, that would be unique. But what we right. do is we find the closest airport. But guess what? Only 11% of all overnight trips in this country are by air. The other 89% are by car. But we, I've, I work in an industry that could care less about the drive market because they think it's not important uh, because right. they spend a well, little know, bit is, less. But in the aggregate, they spend way more. Well, and that's sort of, you know, you're talking about such a classic data problem, right? You're looking at a segment right. of the travel market that you described that is so lucrative and so valuable that most people are overlooking. You know, and some yes. of it's because that they're at sort of the way things are always done. But also it's just because of a you know a lack of digging down deeper at that information and data you just described that would actually point you in the direction to make smart business decisions about how to strategically think about the industry and how right. to think about what it means. But I think you know the the curious thing about that is that people can see the obvious things in the data, but if it's too hard to change the way they do business to adjust to it, they, they don't adjust. And I, I think that's what I've run into is, you know, the industry can see the numbers, uh, you know, and, and they can see them very clearly. And, and it, the numbers have been the same for, I don't know, 15, 20 years now. And every, um, you know, every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, you know, AAA comes out and talks about how many people are going to hit the road this weekend. Well, those numbers are actually very similar to what it is every day of the year. But the industry can't change the way they do things because their systems were built around the old data set. Right. right. Well, that's it, absolutely it's true, right? I mean, this. Mm -hmm. yes. And so there's sort of a lot of built-in inertia, as you say. Yes. Um, in these systems, and, you know, people say they want to be serious about data. Um, there's a very giant leap between understanding and interpreting data and putting it into practical terms or practical practice in your business life. And so I do think that's a fascinating point you raised because it is also my experience that people often say they're interested in what the data says, what it means, but it's a very rare business that is willing to rethink their business models because the data is telling them something and <laughs> right. taking them in a right. direction where they need to go. But I do think those that take advantage of it, uh, there is actually a huge market advantage to those people. Um, and so it's a fascinating area and that, that you know, for I'm all of this explosion of information. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> but, but for all of this explosion of information, right. it is amazing how little it actually turns into practical use 
um, because people are stuck in sort of their way of doing things. Or one of the other things, and I sort of mentioned one of my other favorite quotes from the book, anecdote, the plural of anecdote is not data. People love to rely on their business sense and their sense of, well, I've done it this way for years. I know the business. Right, right. Well, your experiences don't in and of themselves mean that's the way everything needs to be done. Now, again, I'm not saying that individual experiences don't matter, but meshing the two is when you get people that are really effective and really thoughtful about business. Right. Well, I think one of the other things that holds people back is is what you zero in on in Chapter 5, which is in statistics we trust, is what you're seeing true. And my favorite right. quote is 64% of all statistics are wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, right. I mean, you can tell I'm a cynic when it comes to this, but but it, it's because they are so often quoted in in ways that don't help you make business decisions, and because there are so many statistics, how do we know that they're true? Well, and that's a great point. I mean, one of the things that we talk about in this chapter in particular is the fact that when we see information, studies, numbers out there, there's always this question of what does this really mean to me? And how do I know this has sort of met any standard at all, any acceptable standard for science? Um, one of my favorites is the, the dilemmas over the, the, the effects of coffee. We found over 3,000 studies on coffee, and literally I could show you any number of news articles that on a given day say coffee causes cancer, and coffee prevents cancer. Same. And, and coffee cures yeah. cancer. <laughs> cures cancer. How am I, How am I, or anyone who's not an expert, I mean, I drink a lot of coffee. I wrote this book, an awful lot of it in Starbucks. But, you know, what does this mean, and how do you interpret it? Well, one of the things we talk a lot about in this chapter, we talk about something that I call the multiple comparison problem. And I think it's kind of a, a neat little concept that helps people think about it. One of the studies we found was a little bit like a cookbook. It had tested almost, you know, 85 different food products on cancer. Everything from, you know, bacon to coffee to a whole host of other things. And of all 85, it only found it found one what they call statistically significant result that coffee was going to prevent uh, a certain type of cancer. Now, that's interesting, and that got reported, but in fact, if you're going to look at all those different things over and over and over, just by chance you should find one that might look like it's making a difference, right? So when you see studies that sort of probe lots and lots and lots of different possibilities, you have to be a little careful about how you interpret them. And so this chapter sort of tries to take people in a little bit of insight into how to think about these issues and how to think about when you see numbers, what are maybe some of the hallmarks that might make someone a little bit cautious. Oops, sorry, I had you on mute. <laughs> um, oh, that's okay. So, no, I I, uh, I got up actually to grab your physical copy of the book because uh, quite often I'm I uh, look at the table of contents on um, on Amazon and I wanted to dig in to to take a look at at some of the charts in your book. Ah, and, um, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, and um, you know, also I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, before we get into talking about Africa. I want to talk about the lottery because you know, people <laughs> there there are two statistics that every uh, every young woman gets quoted, and, and that's 
you know, your your average uh, time it's going to take for you to meet the right man and, and uh, you know, your chances of winning the lottery. And, <laughs> and so – so let's talk about the lottery a little bit because you've got a fascinating chart about the average lottery numbers uh, for those born in each month. Uh, well, this is a chart about the draft lottery, actually. And so this is about um, uh, this is oh, from okay. the Vietnam I'm sorry. draft. This, right. Right, no, no. right. We do talk about the lottery somewhere else, actually, too. But this one particularly is about just the draft lottery. And the idea here was sort of thinking about when we're thinking about statistics and we're trying to figure out is something random or not, there's certain patterns we'd expect. We think where people are born, you know, when they're born should be random for the most part. You know, they have these little blips where we talk about, oh, blizzard babies. Or, you know, there was a, I don't know if you saw the ad right. this year on the Super Bowl babies. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, right, which, you know, I wrote a little blog on. I kind of don't think there's evidence that that's actually true, but it was a great ad nonetheless. But the point is, you know, in this chapter, we took a look back at the Vietnam draft lottery, which is essentially they took these little balls, put everybody's birthday into a balls and put them into a bin and then randomly picked numbers. And if your birthday came out, you were rank ordered, you know, with the highest, you know, if you're number one, you're the most likely to get draft all, drafted all the way down to 365. Well, it turns out that the way they mixed the balls wasn't random. They put all the January balls in first, and then they put the February balls in and mixed them up. Then they put the March balls in and mixed them up. And so by the time you got to December, you had um, the December balls were only mixed once, whereas the January balls had been mixed 12 different times. Oh, so when wow. you look at the data where you should see a completely random pattern, in fact, you see that the later months, like December, you are much more likely to have a high number, meaning you are more likely to be drafted. Oh, so wow. that's an interesting story. But what it sort of tells you and what the point is is, we can use statistics to see whether something should be is due to chance or not. That's kind of what the notion behind this statistical significance concept you see all the time. You hear in the news there were significant results. From a statistics standpoint, we're talking about does it look like it's random or not. This is a good way to kind of get that concept uh, straight in your head. Right. So your next chapter talks, uh, using Africa as the example, um, about misrepresentations and misinterpretation. And we, we've talked about misinterpretation a little bit, um, but this this talks about visual misrepresentation. Mm -hmm. And I, I see this all the time when I'm trying to uh, put together charts for my clients every month to show them what they've done. And I'll look at, at bar charts and I'll look at, you know, at, at different types of representing. And, and some don't show the anomalies as much as I would like. So... Um, talk to us a little bit about this whole issue of misrepresentation and misinterpretation so, of data. Yeah. Look, the misrepresentation issue is one that I think everybody needs to be aware of because this is a place where you can really be misled by something as simple as a graph or a chart. People like visuals. I mean, I think even if you don't love math, you might like to see a picture. We mm -hmm. talk about, I mean, one of the best examples in this, I and mean, we do show the Africa maps, and actually this was a funny episode of the West Wing where they were talking about these two different maps. You know, the famous map that we're all used to is the Mercator projection, but yes. then there's these other, the, the Winkle triple projection. And the, the key is that when Mercator made his map, he actually was doing it so that sailors could sort of go point to point. But because we're trying to take a, a globe, right, a sphere, and flatten yeah. it, there's inherent, inherent distortions when you do that. Okay? So the, the map that we're used to seeing, we see the size of Africa versus the size of Greenland, and Greenland looks like it's larger than Africa. But in fact, if you really look at the landmass and you did something to scale, you would see that Africa is much, much larger than Greenland. All right. right. That's a simple example where there's a purpose for the picture that this represents it. Now we talk about graphing. 
And we have this example in the book where we take the exact same data from a study about how many hours of exercise per week you do and how much your mortality risk will be reduced. And we take it and we graph the data six different ways in consecutive pages with changing the axis, changing the buckets, flipping the graph upside down. And you literally end up with multiple, each picture you look at, you would come up with completely different conclusions <laughs> about the effect, all of it based on the same data. So it's kind right. of a sobering lesson that when we look at data and think about it, we have to be very, very careful because how those things are cut, how people picture it can really make a difference. And sometimes if someone has an ulterior motive, they're going to make the data look the way they want to. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I am glad in this particular chapter to find out that there is a diminishing point of return on exercise, and you don't need to exercise 75 hours or more per week. <laughs> That's a really yeah, good thing. Yeah, that, that's at least what the study says. <laughs> I mean, I sort of always joke it with um, when I talk to my trainer, he's always bugging me about drinking more water, and I always say, well, you know, if you drink too much water, eventually you die. He doesn't really <laughs> doesn't like when I say that, but, you know. Too much of anything is too much, well, except maybe too much right. statistics. You can never right. have too much of that. Well, and, and you also talk about something that we all deal with every day, and that is our gas tank. And, you know, <laughs> trying to explain to your 16-year-old when they're getting their driver's license about how the last quarter of a tank of, of the gas seems to disappear, but it's really the way that it's calibrated. <laughs> Well, right. It's, so this is one that I always, you know, I work a lot of late nights randomly and I, you know, drive home and then realize my gas light's on because I was oblivious to, to that little data. But um, it's actually a really interesting distinction. In the United States, uh, car manufacturers actually build in a bit of a buffer so that even if you're on empty, you can still drive quite a bit away because right. they kind of know the tendency of people here to not quite fill their tanks when that light comes on. If you're in Europe and your gas light comes on, you're pretty close to empty. So that's a pretty big difference. That's a cultural difference that's reflected in the right. data. But again, you know, that's a misrepresentation that's done for a specific purpose. Nobody's saying there's anything wrong with that, but but it's just something interesting to know. So we do talk about that in the book too. Oh, and there's another one and and I know you talk about it in the book too and that's expiration dates. And um <laughs> it over Christmas, uh we went and volunteered as family down at Metropolitan Ministries here in Tampa mm -hmm. uh sorting out uh, cans of food and they sure. have charts there that tell you when you need to throw things away and it is astounding how old this stuff can be right and still be oh, good well, yeah i mean i was amazed i mean this for this i just went on the usda website and started to look at well what is the difference between a sell by date and a best if used by date or a right. use by date and you know none of those are truly expiration dates you know people right. treat it like and that date is there, I should throw it out. But, um, you know, we cite the NRDC in our book, and they basically say that 9 out of 10 Americans needlessly throw away food. Now, again, I haven't studied those numbers to tell you exactly the source of, you know, 9 out of 10, and we're going to talk about why I'm always cynical of those kind of claims as well. But there's no question that there is a lot of confusion over a sell-by date a best if used by date and what that means. And that's another simple example. That is information that is meant to convey something to people that is that people are interpreting as something completely different. They think it means I have to throw away the food if this date has passed. And that is almost right. never the case unless it's purely listed as an expiration date. Right, right. So you also uh, talk about how ignorance is not 
bliss. And and I love uh, what you cite here is is that customers actually thought a quarter pounder at McDonald's was bigger <laughs> than a third. Uh, of a pound burger because the four is bigger than the three. Now, it must be working because I heard on the financial news this morning that McDonald's is doing better than Google and Apple. So they're doing something (laughs) right. (laughs) Maybe they have a bigger profit margin on the quarter pounder. Well, it's just an interesting, again, when we start to deal with math, um, people are afraid, people don't want to, you know, one of the things I talk about is that about 11% of all people have ever taken a statistics class in the U.S. Mm-hmm. When you think about that, that's a pretty small percentage. And if that's the case, you know, is it surprising that people kind of get confused by things like fractions and decimals? Yeah. Right. But also, people start paying attention. But, I mean, the, the A&W third-pound burger failure is an amazing story uh, when you think about it, that it's truly because it looks like three is bigger than four or, you know, four is bigger than three, even though fractionally a third a pounder is more than a quarter pounder, that's an incredible, um, incredible misconception of data. Right, right. So um, let's move on and talk about uh, Chapter 7, which is, is uh, you have a, a unique uh, title here, Spoon-Fed Data. Talk to me about that. Uh, so this is our chapter on cherry picking. So cherry picking comes from the idea that if you were to go, I don't know, a lot of people pick cherries all the time, but if you go to a cherry tree and you think about which cherries do I want to take off the tree, I want to get the cherries that look the freshest, they'll have the nice red right. color, but the ones that are bruised or cook kind of gross, I just want to leave them on the tree. So I take the best and I leave the rest behind. Well, when you do that with data, it's also called cherry picking, where you only look at the data that supports your position, but you throw out the mm-hmm. data that doesn't. That's what this chapter is about. Right. And so you give some examples here of uh, pediatricians recommending a specific baby food as an example. Right. So, you know, the claim was four out of five pediatricians prefer a specific brand of baby food. And you would think that means that of all the pediatricians surveyed, four out of every five picked this brand. But in fact, what if I told you only 12% of all the pediatricians surveyed picked the brand. So how is that possible? Well, because of cherry picking. What the survey did is it started with a set of pediatricians, and it asked the first question, you know, do you recommend baby food to at least once a week? You know, would you recommend that your you know, parents right. should serve their kids baby food at least once a week? And everybody who said no got dropped out of the survey. So then you'd say, okay, well, now we have the set of of pediatricians that recommend baby food, so it must be then that four out of five of those are the ones that recommend baby food, this particular brand. And again, that also wasn't true, because in fact, what they did next is they said, all right, do you recommend a specific brand of baby food? And everybody who said no, they didn't, got dropped out. So let's say you started with about a little short of 600 pediatricians, you dropped out almost 100 just from the first, and then you drop out another 300 or 350 who never recommend a specific brand. Well, now you've got this tiny set of pediatricians, and of those, it was true that four out of five recommended this brand of baby food. Right. But that was 12% of everybody they started with. So they could make the claim four out of five, but what it really was was four out of five pediatricians who recommend you eat baby food once a week 
and recommend a specific brand of baby food, recommend this brand of baby food. Wow. Well, and again, that that's my big problem with all of the, the survey and, and data that is reported in my industry is they talk about the behavior of the leisure traveler, right? Well, in the United States, only 8% of all trips are actually vacation. And 25% is business travel, which also includes training and a couple of other categories, including government travel. So all of the rest of travel is considered leisure travel, but it's actually life travel, going to a wedding, going to a funeral, you know, going to visit somebody in prison, you know, going to a concert. And, but all of the statistics that are given about leisure travel are about vacation travel. So it's exactly the same thing. So 8% of all travelers behave this way, but they make you think it's, it's the whole of 75% right? That's leisure travel. That's a perfect example of cherry picking. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And uh, I suspect we're seeing a bit of that in, uh, in the political uh, reporting now (laughs) as well. Uh, Cherry picking is likely uh, a favorite tool of the pollsters. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is interesting. Uh, There was a, a, a New York times article that did a cross check of what they called the truthfulness of the candidates, all of the candidates. And, you know, Mm -hmm. again, I try to stay somewhat apolitical, but even, you know, out of this list of all the candidates, even the most quote unquote truthful candidate, according to New York times was saying something misleading one out of every four times. (laughs) That's the most truthful. So that makes you think about that pretty hard, you know, and, and oftentimes, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is, uh, the fact that cherry picking, you know, there are certain sort of tells or flags. One of my other favorite examples is the celebrity deaths in threes. I mean, if you look at the last oh, few yes. days, uh, Doris Roberts died this week. Prince died yesterday. Professional wrestler China died yesterday. Right, right. Right? That's deaths in threes. But right. how am I defining celebrity? And what if I want to go back another week? What about David Bowie? Does that mean deaths happen in four? I could go on CNN and find a list of all sorts of people I might call a celebrity, right? right How I define right. celebrity is going to help me determine, you know, now that's a relatively harm, harmless cherry-picking example, but the definitions matter. <laughs> so you can yeah, often, if you contort the data enough, come up with statements, but the question is how am I qualifying it? That's kind of a good guidepost for right. um, these kinds of things. Well, and and then this leads right into the next chapter, which is about predicting disaster and forecasting the future. And uh, this is poignant because this morning my daughter, who turned 18 last weekend, said to me, Mom, you told me that when I turned 18, you would share the results of the DNA test that I had. And Hmm. so, you know, I I gave her the log on to the site. It was one of these, you know, saliva DNA tests that um, Mm -hmm. my sister had wanted all of the siblings to have have done. So, um, you know, I shared it with her, but I said, you know, listen, Carrie, you have to be really super careful here because it's going to tell you, and and the statistics she pulled out was the 58% propensity for obesity. And I said, well, guess Hmm. what? If you keep eating a pint of of frozen custard every night, your propensity is a hundred percent. So, you know, but but here she was being given data 
about people who had, you know, her G- DNA makeup, right, and whether right. they, you know, had a propensity for heart disease, which, you know, in fact, you, you don't see the propensity for the entire population, right, and, and where you fit of within that. So, so you talk about, uh, you know, the use of statistics in predicting earthquakes, and and of course this week we've had the the um, earthquake in Japan, and we've had the earthquake in Ecuador, and now everybody's saying, oh, you know, well California is going to fall into the water. So, so talk talk well, a little bit about forecasting uh, yeah. disaster well, and forecasting the future. Forecasting is a really tricky topic, and you know I think this is where economists, weathermen. Uh, hedge fund managers all get their bad names, right? Oh, right. you know, an economist can can accurately predict four of four of the last three recessions. Um, you know, kind of funny, but you know, what we talk a lot about here is that first and foremost when you're talking about a forecast, we really are rarely able to predict things with certainty. What we're usually doing is we're providing some range of potential outcomes, right? right. If I'm going to go out and I want to check the weather today, I want to think about, well, is it going to rain? Yes or no? But the really good weather matter giving me some range of probabilities. Oh, it's like 10%, 20% at this time or that time. Is that the best they can do? Because all forecasting first is based on the past. And if the past isn't like the future, I can have the best forecast in the world. But if something changes, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Now, there are other times, though, where forecasts are done based on the information that might not be appropriate. The Fukushima disaster example is one about the height of the wall at the nuclear reactor in the event of a tsunami. The height of the wall was 3.1 meters, which was based on an earthquake in Chile in the 60s. But in fact, there was all sorts of evidence that that wall should have been much, much higher. And in fact, the height of the tsunami was 14 to 15 meters. That's partly how the nuclear reactor ended up getting flooded with the tsunami. That's an example of just bad forecasting, where they didn't use the best available information or the historic information to really see what could happen. So you've kind of got two phenomena here, right? You've got the idea that forecasting is inherently tricky, but then if you don't use the right information in your forecast, doesn't matter what how sophisticated you are, you're going to get it wrong. Right. Absolutely. And and so you talk about choosing your words carefully, and and uh, you know obviously choosing your data set. Uh, carefully is really important um, and having the right right level of expectation you know around the data that you're using right well I think that's look one of the things as well is I find that people like sort of the great headlines they like things to be sort of you know um, sexy but at the end of the day you have to be somewhat qualified when you're talking about these things especially when you talk about predictions because there's right. often times where, you know, how careful are we being in terms of what we can actually measure or not? How confident are we in the prediction? Is there some range of error for, okay, it's within this? You even see this with polling, right? We're doing these political polls, and there's sort of different types of error, and I don't want to bore your listeners with every type of error there is, <laughs> but there's always some confidence interval around these estimates. You know, is Donald Trump going to get 50% or is it, you know, 45 to 55%? You right. notice even in the political discourse this year, something as simple as a margin of error. Next time you watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or whatever your preferred network is, see how often they actually make mention of those ranges of error and those confidence intervals. They kind of start to get left off all the graphics, and then they create these narratives. So all of this forecasting is fascinating. It's interesting, but it is an inexact science. And 
trying to get to the simple punchline without actually putting any of the nuance in is a huge right. mistake when you think about it. Right, right. Well, or you end up being like Yogi Berra, who said it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. Which is how how you end that chapter, which is uh, apropos. Yeah. So uh, yes. the next chapter is really about putting it all together, and and so how. <laughs> How do we put it all together? And, and as laymen, which most of us listening to you today are laymen when it comes uh, to data, when should we actually care? Well, that's a great question. Well, first, you know, the theme that I try to repeatedly say, hopefully from a discussion day you get a little bit, is that the ability to understand data and statistics, you know, the notion of statistical literacy, which is really what I call what we're talking about here, is within the grasp of everyone who wants to be aware and just think a little bit harder about the numbers around them. So the first thing I say to people is just start to be aware. When you see that headline that says, um, people who love grilled cheese have a better sex life, think about that. What does that mean? Can that really be true? Who did they ask these questions to? <laughs> Why? Right. So that's the first thing. There are times where, you know, if the headlines are too sexy, that usually means something is not so true. We talk right. a lot about a story in our book about the fact that uh, if your commute's longer than 45 minutes, you're going to get divorced. Well, <laughs> really? Right. So, so the thing is just a sense of awareness. And the other thing I just mentioned is, you know, oftentimes the information is, is accessible. I am not suggesting that people try to become amateur statisticians and they have to go dig up every study. But sometimes just reading a little deeper, looking for questions, thinking about what it could mean, I think that's right. a really great start. Well, and, and by the way, awareness. if nine months from now there are more births, last week was National Grilled Cheese Day. I just want you to know. <laughs> that's right. There you go. So um, I guess we can look for that blip in the data. <laughs> yeah, so mark your calendar. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, I, I absolutely love how, um, I, I want to say accessible, but um, digestible you have made what I was really afraid was going to be a very, very dry topic. And, you know, I, I'm thinking back to what you said at the beginning of the interview of, of how you, you were actually too personable <laughs> for, for the uh, – <laughs> The whole economist, uh, you know, the internally focused person and going out and, and actually being a consultant and being an expert witness. I think you made a really, really good choice, John. So tell me a little oh. bit about your co-author. Oh, so my co-author's name is Mike Gluck, and actually we are old high school friends. And he is a professional writer, and he lives oh, in Buffalo, New so York. Old. And you uh, Right, and so basically um, when I had the idea for the book, I always joke, I'm a very good writer for an economist. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm a good writer. <laughs> right. So what I was looking for is someone I could collaborate with who could really help capture the voice. And, you know, you use the phrase accessible, and I really view that as a very big compliment because the amount of time Mike and I spent trying to make this accessible to our readers was very uh, – th that was a lot of work. And so, you know, he is a fantastic writer. He has a great sense of humor. Um, he, he and I, we've exchanged, I think our latest count is 3,822 texts with uh, articles that we thought about for the book. And uh, we'd have these statistics tutorials on Sunday nights became our uh, fun time. So uh, 
really proud to have done this with him. He's a really great writer, and he is also very proud of the book. Well, I think this is the first time I've ever heard the word fun and verve used to describe data, and, and this was the quote on the back of your uh, book jacket uh, by a professor of economics at MIT of talking about yes. how you, you address the book with fun and verve. Now, m many of our uh, listeners are going to have to go and look up what verve means. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, I was trying to say, hopefully it's the high energy that I try to portray in our interview today. <laughs> right. Oh, no, but I absolutely love it. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm a sucker for a great cover. And I, I love how uh, many of the things we've talked about, you know, are actually portrayed on the front, although you did forget to include a cup of coffee. So if you ever redo your cover, you've got a wine bottle, you've got, uh, you know, the iPhone and, and um a lot of the, the examples of the things that uh, were in your data stories. Well, John, well, I... When I, uh, uh, when I go do my keynote, I uh, I do have a big picture of coffee in my key, uh, and I, I speak on oh, this good. <laughs> quite a bit. And, and so glasses, coffee right? very prominently in my PowerPoint slides. <laughs> right, and, and a pair of glasses for everyone so they can feel smarter about data. There we go. <laughs> exactly. So, John... Um, do you do public speaking and and uh, you know I know uh, you said that go ahead yes, I do I've actually been doing a lot of public speaking you know i I really one of my big goals of the book has been um I really believe in the message of the book and i I'm excited this is the part of me that did love teaching is to get out and give the message and sort of you know what I've right. been very proud of is every place I've spoken so far has been um the reaction is wow. This is really interesting. I, I can't believe how exciting you make statistics. So um, I am out and speaking all over the place. Um, next week I'm actually keynoting the Inside Self-Storage uh, World Expo in Las Vegas. I don't know when this will air, but it's next week in late April. Um, and so, um, you know, I am out and about doing all sorts of speeches on this. And, uh, you know, and it's a neat topic because one of the things I really love about it is because there are so many great examples, I'm able to really tailor it to the interests of the people I talk right. to so much. So that's a lot right, of what I'm right. doing right now. Well, then we're going to have to collaborate and come up with a speech for you about having the courage to do something about the statistics when you're talking to a corporate well, audience. Yeah, well, that's a great uh, – that would be a lot of fun, actually, because I do think you know, if you can make the business case to people that they need to understand, they are foregoing a huge competitive advantage if they're willing to actually look at the data in a sophisticated way. Right. The, you know, the ability to reform their industries to be market leaders is – huge and it's just opportunity that people are afraid of taking advantage of so i think there's a huge market for that i think there's great opportunities for people that aren't afraid of data right, right. Uh, in the world well so you know and and i mean i think you've done it in this book and certainly on this interview today but i i think that stories are such a great way to communicate that and you know one of the things that i tell the leaders of my own industry is you know what would have happened if Adidas and Nike and and later Reebok would have just sold tennis shoes, uh, sports shoes to athletes, and you had to be a professional athlete, um, you know, because that's who they created them for initially, and you know they left uh, you know shoes for kids to kids, right? And right. and it wasn't until much later that. Probably somebody sat in a boardroom and said, well, hey, what if we marketed the shoes to moms, right, and to kids? Right. And the purists in the room would have said, no, 
you know, our market is this, and they would have done that cherry picking of the data to come up, and and that's how I tell people, you know, about this whole issue of marketing to the air traveler when the air traveler is only 11% of all travel, and and so you know, I think being able to tell those stories, and then uh, again giving people the cur- courage to you know analyze what what the underlying reason is for sticking with the status quo and not being persuaded by the data. Completely agree. Again, you know, I, I find, and I sort of started with the notion that a lot of this book came from my practice of trying to explain complicated data to people that maybe mm-hmm. didn't always want to hear it or didn't understand the right. message. And I have found that, you know, people are smart, right? It's not that people can't do it. It's that sometimes people haven't, you know, it's just different people learn in different ways. Not everybody right. wants to learn with an equation and, you know, a bunch of letters and numbers. So, Sometimes you have to sort of take different tacks to help sort of get the intuition across. And part of the notion of such a wide-ranging set of examples in the book is that, you know, even if one example doesn't resonate with you, another will. I think it's good from a learning perspective. And I I find that same thing when you're talking about the communication with the business world. You know, different things will resonate with different business leaders. But that doesn't mean the message isn't there. And so um, I think that's a really critical part of being a good data person. It's not Mm -hmm. enough to just run the sound analysis got to be able to explain it. Right. Well, we have been talking today about a book called Every Data. My favorite thing about this book is that Seth Godin says, book will make you smarter, faster. Please read it before making decisions or forming opinions of any kind. (laughs) I love (laughs) Seth, and I love that quote. It is just amazing. Um, John, how can folks get in touch with you if they would like to have you speak at their event? Uh, yes, yeah, so I have a website, uh, johnhjohnsonphd.com, and uh, there's all sorts of links there to me, some videos of me and my email address and all my other info is there. They can reach me through that, and uh, I you know, love to talk to different types of audiences. It's sort of the real fun of this book and this experience is getting to really meet a lot of different neat people so please check it out, and uh, please do feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to uh, love to talk to anyone. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. And for those of you who are listening, if you would like to learn more about the Executive Girlfriends Group or about Solutions and our Game Changer Network, you can go to solutions.com or you can go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. We really appreciate you joining us today and hope you have an amazing weekend and go out and change your game today. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. 